Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Thank you, Mariah, for joining us on Death by Design podcast. It was so great to meet you about a week ago face to face. And, you know, you really intrigued me of what you do professionally um, and how that intersects with end of life. Um, But before we get started on that, tell me a little bit about um, how you became interested in helping individuals at end of life. Yes, I, I love this question because it's it actually has me really go back and think about Three specific influences that were so important to this journey that I've been on, Kimberly, which is really to um, look at grief and look at death together. And then I've really got a deep desire to help others in all things related to death. So these three influences, I call them Kanya, Clients, and Karen. And Kanya was my beloved, always with me, German Shepherd dog. Ah, uh, it's something we have in common. You you understand this devotion. Absolutely. Uh, and she was with me through high school, through college, and beyond for a span of a good long time for, for that breed, 14 years. Um, she was my constant companion. And when she died, I, I was undone. Uh, by this, I mean, I was so, so sad. I was really heartbroken. And though appeared to be going about my very busy life with business as usual, I was in graduate school at the time in the middle of a demanding internship at a Harvard teaching hospital. And I can tell you, I, I pretended a lot, like a lot of people do when they're, they're, you know, in a grief process. And during this bereavement, what was really striking to me was that my five brothers and sisters and my parents, they were just uncharacteristically absent. We are all quite close and engaged, yet I think this more distant retreating Mariah, whom they knew had lost her best friend, was not on the top of the back then call list. And clearly my quiet despair had an impact on my family and my friends. Um, Now with the work I do and the training I've done, I know my grief scared them. And Mm -hmm. I can tell it scared me. And you you know exactly what I'm talking about with all you have seen and heard. and this grief, it, it lasted uh, for many, many, many months. And it really remains my very first clear experience of the power of grief. I learned so much about her during this mm. period of time. And, you know, I was left feeling and thinking like I was in the midst of a mystery. And I became extremely interested in the subject of grief and loss. The second influence came subsequently over several decades of work with clients in my weight and health management practice. Uh, Treatment that I do is long-term. And so over years of work, I've seen my clients through the best of times and the absolute most heartbreaking losses. Um, I bore witness to the death of clients who've lost their children, their friends, their siblings, their pets. And I've just had a kind of compassion and ability to be with their sadness, which is often overwhelming, 
And I began to recognize and then welcome over the years that I could provide this listening to others and that this quiet, open caring really makes a difference to those who are suffering and and that this suffering goes on for a good long time. It's not a two week and then it's over. No, there is not an expiration date. Mm, I totally agree with that. Totally agree yeah. with that. So, so, so that was number two. Um, and then lastly, several years ago, I lost one of my closest friends to a protracted battle with a terminal cancer. And she's not the only close friend I've lost. I'm, I'm no stranger to, to grief and loss on a very, very personal level. But this, this was something different. Um, my, my dear friend lived quite near me. So I had the privilege of being front row to her thoughts and her questions and her wishes. And I joined her on this journey. And we talked a lot about how the end of life could maybe somehow be different and kinder than the experience she was having and then anticipating. Um, and that was it. Kimberly, this was where I promised her and myself, and that was seven years ago, that I would train and learn and open myself up to the death experience in every way possible. Um, this was not a sacrifice for me, but a vision I held. Mm. And, um, well, you you know how the draw of hospice right. in your, your life experience I began volunteering at hospice. It's four miles down the road for me. I can ride my bike there. And I would go every week, and I still go for as many hours as poss- I can possibly spare from my practice. So that's been, I'm on my sixth year now of that. I, I trained in grief and loss. I went to the best, the people doing traumatic grief, regular grief. And I ne- now see clients for all kinds of sadness and loss. You know, they've lost their pets. They've lost their people. Um I recently completed my uh, end-of-life doula training, though I've been doing doula work for for several years now. And uh, I think I shared with you when we met that I'm the commissioner of the Dover Cemetery. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So so my people have a great great final resting place. And then last year, and this is is really quite a a serious endeavor, I've been volunteering for Compassion and Choices, and it's an amazing organization that's all about expanding end-of-life choices. And I had the the privilege uh, and really was quite an experience to testify at the State House's summer in support of medical aid and dying. So there you got it. I, I just, that's where it all happened. And I, I'm I just so, I just love my work as a, as a trusted guide for those experiencing all kinds of loss, you know, whether it's a diagnosis or actually dying. Um, you know, my someday I will, mm. that promise I made to my friend has morphed into devoting as much time as possible to those with illness, a new diagnosis or planning for end of life. That's amazing. And on behalf, you know, I'm not from Massachusetts, but on behalf of everyone in your state, uh, thank you for expanding the end of life, life options. I mean, it all, it's all about choices. And, and I think the more choices we have at end of life, the better we're able to meet people where they're at. And so thank you for testifying and, and really expanding our choices at end of life. Uh, within Massachusetts, that's it's it's about meeting people where they're where they are. So thank yes. you so much. Oh, you're welcome. A privilege, really. So really, your practice. You mentioned it earlier that you work with people who are tend to overeat um, and probably have a lot of other complicated grief um, when it comes to that. You know what I'm finding is throughout my years is that grief seems to be bubbling up in a lot of different ways. 
um, anger, overeating, and to, to the point that some of us, you know, are, are dealing with it very humanly by trying to numb it out. And uh, so talk to me a little bit about how you see certain habits of ours as being human and how that intersects with grief. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I think to just answer the question with respect to the link between overeating and grief, maybe, or using food and grief, um, you know, the, the backdrop is that when I started my work in, in treating overweight, which was almost uh, 38 years ago now, our country was about 20% overweight, and it was not a worldwide epidemic. Now our country is 73% overweight, and it is a worldwide epidemic. Holy cow. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. So the first thing I want to just say is that if if one is, you know, if you're not struggling with your weight, you're the minority. And man, you got some kind of magic going on because this is an environmental situation to begin with. We, we did not have a gene change and morphing to this percentage of overweight in, you know, 38 years. So the, the good news is that there's actually, there's a lot you can do about that. And yet when one is experiencing grief and loss, it's the most vulnerable time for gaining weight. Initially, appetite might be lost because obviously, I mean, the rug is, your world goes upside down sure. with, with whatever loss we're talking about. Um, however, often as time unfolds, eating may be experienced as a form of solace and it may have always, it may have become that anyway. It's a learned behavior. There are certain chemical responses, never mind the taste good momentary experience that occur with eating. So, you know, the person who loves sweets may find short-term distraction and a bit of relief from by eating cookies and candy. You know, the person with a salty palate might seek solace in cheese, chips, and crackers and the availability of food. It is always there. You know, you go to the hairdresser, it's there. You go to the bank, it's there. Um, so there's kind of a natural setup for using food um, for, as I, I just say, solace and a dopamine surge. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a very, very uh, vulnerable time for, for, for just about anyone, particularly <clears throat> after the initial, you know, stunning, maybe shut down reaction. Well, you know, I'm from the South, so when someone dies, we bake and we bring fried chicken. Um, and so I think that's kind of a, a really interesting theory of, of how we, you know, bake and bring people things when they're facing unexpected grief or the loss of someone. Yeah, you think where that came from, you know, years and years ago, uh, food was scarce. Mm. So the way to help someone feel better would be to bring them what would be called a treat. <laughs> Not a treat anymore. It's commonplace, but the, the traditions remain. You want to, you know, fill someone up who's depleted and has lost, you know, just the metaphor of lost. Um, I would also say that, you know, grief, grief, sadness, shock, all incapacitating experiences. So this is just another sidebar where my work really rises to the, to the front and center. And it's kind of paradoxical because if, if, if during grief and loss, self-care can become very difficult. Healthy eating and exercise can fall completely out of reach, not just as the environment change with people bringing things over all the time, but certainly you and I could both speak to just the loss of energy and motivation and initiative when one has been, you know, slayed by loss. 
And what I've found in this area uh, with my clients, they actually experience a return to power when they're focusing on their weight and health because as the world looks extremely bleak, managing food and managing exercise may be one area that they're in control of when everything feels out of control. Wow. That's that's crazy. But it makes totally sense. I mean, totally sensical to do that, something like that. So I got to just tell you one, one story that just really brought this home to me. And this was probably midway in my career treating overweight. Um, I had a client I'd been with for a couple of years. It was very close to, and her daughter had a riding accident and she was a, a professional rider and she uh, you know, hit the fence and uh, suffered a catastrophic injury. She lost um, brain function in this family. Oh my goodness. They, it was, they were, they were in like, I think Virginia at the time and I'm in Massachusetts. And, uh, this client spoke with me almost every single day during bringing her daughter off life support, you know, getting her health back to as, as, as good as it could be. And yet, uh, her daughter had written a will and she had expressed her wishes and she was literally a vegetable. Mm. So this family had to make, had to follow through with her wishes to um, withhold food and water and enter life. She was on a feeding tube. And I thought for sure, you know, I, this was just more than anything I had ever experienced. And I had no expectation that my client would continue with me. And she did. Mm. And we continued our work through the death of her daughter. And that was another experience where I could hold the space for her with all that she was going through and help her to be in control of this area of her life, um, her weight management during this time where she did. Certainly it was beyond out of control. Um, That was quite, that was quite a learning opportunity for me and an opportunity in just so many ways. You know, I never really thought about it as, as a certain aspect of our lives that we can control, but you know, when you eat better and you exercise, there's just, some chemical things that happen in the body that make you even feel better. Yes. yes. Well, certainly number one form of depression. I was so surprised when I was an intern at in one of my uh, uh, training programs years ago. I was asked, I was a runner at the time, and I was asked if I would develop an exercise program for people with clinical depression. So the link between exercise and depression has only become clearer and clearer. And when one is so reasonably depressed, let's say, through loss and grief, um, being able to move just allows for something else to happen. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that, that means when you're, when you want to lay in bed and have that, you know, glass of wine, it's like, get up and go around the block and, and exercise. And, you know, it's really interesting, you know, the sugar that tends to be addictive in some of the things that we're even talking about. So it, it really is a chemical chemical balance. And, uh, it's, I I totally agree with you. Um, when I exercise and get moving, I totally feel a lot better, but let me, let's talk about this new movement that you just happen to be a part of called a death doula. Um, Mm. you know, it's, it's one of these movements that's happening throughout the United States. A lot of people are still unfamiliar with it. Um, and I love it. Um, I call them Sherpas. Um, but I also love to hear people's um, explanations of what 
you know, death doulas, death sherpas do in this field. So tell us how, tell us a little bit about what you are doing within this death doula movement and the services that you assist individuals with through this service. Sure. Um, so my end-of-life doula trainings with the International End-of-Life Doula Association is called ANELDA for short, I-N-E-L-D-A. And ANELDA has been at the forefront of doula training in the United States. It's, as you say, it's a, it's a very new field. Um, but this, and I actually chose to train with ANELDA because they have a gorgeous model that makes so much sense. So I'll tell you, I'll go through the three phases of the work, just, just touching on the highlights of each phase. Um, so the work is done with the dying patient, if at all possible, and family. Um, and the, each of the three phases reflect a very thoughtful, loving, guided process uh, before death, during death, and after death. And, it, you know, I always feel as, a, as an end-of-life doula, if I can provide this framework through all three phases, I am just going to be with a group of people who are going to have just an amazing experience of dying. My goal, or our goal, is to have a death process that honors the wishes of the dying person and that he or she has a voice and has an end-of-life plan, if able. And I say if able because sometimes you're called in when the, the family is very engaged, but then the person dying is, is really not able to function in a way that you can get a lot of work done. Um, and what's also wonderful about this model is family and close friends and even caregivers are all encouraged to be involved in this, any part of this three-phase process. So phase one, phase one is called creating legacy. My goal in this phase is to have all, especially the dying person, be in touch with their place in the world. So you think about that. End of life, your person is dying, they're, a, they're cogent or semi-cogent. And they get to think about how they got to where they are. What were the experiences that shaped their life? Who influenced them? You know, what events might they like to describe or note as meaningful? And oh my goodness, you know, and Kimberly, I'm sure you can, this resonates with you as well. End of life, relationships and experiences with people loved is the most important of everything. Mm. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, and connection, you know, it's, it's, it's that, yes. that vital connection you have with, within those relationships. And, you know, some of those relationships aren't the best, but it's like, you're still, you weathered the storm. It's, it's yes. makes those relationships even richer than, than those who have walked away from long-term uh, friendships because it got hard. Yes. And sometimes those long-term relationships, there are regrets because people haven't perhaps forgiven or thought that, hey, you know, being in a long-term relationship means you have breakdowns. That's part of the history. That's the fabric. So often in creating legacy, you can see people reconcile some differences. You can achieve a whole level of communication that wasn't available before this clock was ticking. So it's a gorgeous time. And, and then there's all kinds of representations of life and a personal legacy that can come to the forefront. So there can be letter writing by, you know, people in the family, by friends. There can be, you know, letters that one might want to hold on to forever, you know, read and, and given, exchanged. Um, there can be favorite items that are, are brought into the space of where the, the dying person is spending their time. 
that are just represent representations of a history, you know, a memory, something that was valued that is not lost, that is very much in place. And there's a place during legacy work for, as I say, family and friends to participate. So it can become very creative, very loving, um, and can be a, really a new landscape where kind of a circle of sadness that people are spinning in only faster and faster. In addition to that, there can be this legacy work that just is such a reminder and so rich in expression. Mm. So that's that's the first phase. The second phase is called sitting vigil. So sitting vigil is when we guide the patient and the family through the last days. And we're, we're always working with a team that's already in place as well. So if it's hospice, you know, there's the nursing staff, social worker, a spiritual guide, whatever. But this is a time, and it, it begins before, you know, well before active dying, hopefully. Um, it's a time where we acknowledge death. We really want our person to die in the best possible way where loving comfort is everywhere. Um, there are times also, of course, naturally, where families are very worried. So they may be worried about what it looks like or what certain symptoms mean. So along with staff, because end-of-life doula, we are not medical people, but we do know and recognize different phases of dying. But we can work with staff to help reassure families as to what's normal in terms of symptoms, in terms of what next to expect. You know, I really see my job is to help take as many worries away as possible. Um, and again, some of the more challenging times for families is when there are symptoms and signs of struggle and the body breaking down. Um I, I think the summary of sitting vigil, it, and it can be hours, and you may have to tag team with other people because people, you know, this could be two days, this could be three days, four days, but we are really integrating into what's already been established or not. Um, we're aware there's a lot going on during this time of pre-death and active dying, um, that there may be religious rituals to support that really ground people. And ultimately, I, I, my end game is to throughout be a calm and reassuring process during death. Wow. And you know, that's sometimes this stage is, is really perfect for the death doulas because many people that we have been close to throughout the years tend to turn away during this time. <laughs> and so the death doula plays a very vital role um, to remind the patient as well as the family that this is just a normal process. Yes, it is yet one that probably takes everything you've got to stay present to. Absolutely. So there's an interesting, and you don't like that term really, there's a just such a respect for wherever anyone is in the family. And, and you know, I never try to help people feel better or you shouldn't feel this way, whatever. Everything goes. And that's the trick and the art and the science of being a guide is that I have in my mind where I'm going and then how I'm going to get there with this group of people going through this event. That's where then the artistry comes in. Mm, that's beautifully put. So phase three is called reprocessing. And, you know, it's a kind of a clinical term, but it, it's really a regroup 
with family and friends and maybe caregivers to acknowledge and process what has just happened. It can take place one, two, three weeks post-passing. I, I would prefer to do it earlier rather than later um, because the story of the death that we've all shared is very, very much in the forefront. And each person may be remembering their story differently. There may be uncertainty or worry or peace. We hope more peace over how that person died. Um, but I think the other kind of anti-cultural part of the reprocess is that in this regroup, we really acknowledge the grieving process. And this, this is where my expertise is a little more extended beyond the realm of end-of-life doula. Because end-of-life doulas do not necessarily do the long-term work of grieving. they It's really just this is exactly what the term is. It's a reprocess of the death event. And then often people are referred out if they're willing and interested in getting more support. Wow. Now, you know, this is the interesting thing, that, that some individuals... Um, this is such a new field that, you know, the question is, is it expensive to have a death doula at the bedside? And I, I loved your explanation when we were working together back in um, right outside of Boston. But you, you said that, you know, this is it could be a sliding scale. Some doulas do it per hour. Um, but tell me a little bit about what what is this expense to have a death doula at the bedside? Sure. And I think you're going to see, even if we were having this conversation next year, there's going to be a different conversation. About right, it. right. It's ever, it's evolving. You got it. And right now there's no third party reimbursement. So we're, we're end of life doulas are, are most commonly found or in hospice, often part of a hospice program, being integrated into a hospice program, maybe not all three phases, depending upon the training, but definitely you'll see their presence in hospice programs. Is Often it's a volunteer position, although I'm hearing now more that hospices are making a place for, uh, you know, a, a you know, bona fide salary position for, for their end-of-life doulas. Um, the other place that you'll find end-of-life doulas are in private practice. And again, this is the, the charges for this is, is quite varied. So, you know, in private practice, you're not going to third party, party bill for your services. Um, personally, you know, I've been very, very, very fortunate in being able to have a very solid other business. So I, any grief or end of life work, any work in that domain, I say I never want you to not come because you can't afford it. So right. whenever someone can pay and generally I, I, I say, $25. That's perfect. And, um, you know, that's then you, you, you know, and I think there are, you know, people like myself who are very flexible about making their services in this way a service. Nice. Nice. And, you know, we talk about, well, wow, it's not a third party reimbursement stream, but you don't come with all those restrictions and being told what to do. You're able to meet the family exactly where they are and allow the family to guide you to where you're going to be um, with no yeah. restrictions. Yes. And and this is this work, again, you, I'm already speaking with someone who's walked this path. You, uh, There is such a spiritual component to this work. And however, one might define spiritual. Spiritual to me in this work, it is not of this world. It is some other consciousness that I know I bring to it. I feel I'm in the presence when people are talking about their mortality and having the myriad of 
reactions and experiences to, to confronting whatever element of that that they are, that I am in the presence of something so sacred that, you know, it's, it's difficult to even think I'm now going to charge you for this. Mm, right, right. <laughs> Right. So, you know, pe- people are obviously needing to make a living, you know, I, and, and, and that's, there's a fee for service. But I think that I, I've just been finding for my practice, this works, it's in a very different place than my weight management work. Wow. Now, let's, so do you guys, you know, you mentioned earlier, you do conversations with people on Skype and via phone. I mean, how does, how does someone find you to work with, whether it's, you know, through a, you know, a guide, whether it's, you know, trying to help people find a death doula in their area, or with just grief um, as a therapist? Yeah, so um, my work has always been word of mouth. It's a, it's just a great built-in control for good work. And this is a area of life that affects everyone. So, I mean, I was, I stopped at the pharmacy yesterday and I ran into my son who's now, his, he's 22 and it was his middle school tutor. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, are you still doing your grief work? I said, oh yes, of course. And she began to tell me of this amazing position she and her family were in to have a woman who was diagnosed with stage four, stage four colon cancer, I think it was. I sometimes don't even remember the names of the, of the cancers anymore because uh-huh. they all, it all is the same. You're in the space of it. And this woman has been living in their house. She's an extended family member while she's going through a trial treatment for what is a terminal cancer. And her, the woman, the patient's extended family had just arrived from Ecuador. Oh, living wow. In Yes. And she said, oh, you know, I just, this, and she began to just tell me everything that was happening in her world. And I said, you know my number, call me anytime. And so that, there's so much work that I, good work that I could do with this system. Mm-hmm. You, and that's so often what it's, what happens. It's word of mouth. I, um, I do have a website, um, uh, com. Uh, so people can always find me there. And I'm Mariah in Dover, Massachusetts. So I'm, if you Google me, you'll find me. Awesome. Awesome. You know, that's not only um, you're doing so much um, end of life work in your community, whether it's, you know, being a longtime volunteer at your local hospice house. And now you're even kind of running a death cafe, which is a little bit different than kind of the death cafes out there. But you wanted to have space for people to even you know, allow people to, you know, the event to evolve into whatever it's supposed to be. So tell me what's going on with this death cafe you're doing. Yeah. So I'm just right now getting the word out. I'm going to have an event in my home, which I hope to have as a regular event. You know, the background thinking, Kimberly, for me is that we're generally uneasy talking about death and we're afraid of death and we're afraid of grief, our own and that of another. So uh, death cafes have been done in over 66 countries in the world. And there are um, I, they're in the tens of thousands of people who have attended them. So I'm hoping to create a space where people can come, not a bereavement group, not a clinical treatment program, but a place where we can actually talk about dying and 
when you think about the levels at which people have experienced death, I know when I do grief counseling for pet owners, I hear about the most significant people in their lives whom they've lost. They spend more time on that than the pet often in the first few sessions. Mm-hmm. So this is a place where um, it's, it's not, it's becoming a different kind of comfortable with the fact that we're dying, that we've all been touched by death, that by the time you reach 30, you've probably been touched by something more on the catastrophic side. And I'm sure that our conversations will also morph into just the, uh, what's happening in our medical system. You know, the resistance to restraint, um, how people have their stories of facing impossible success medically, you know, watching others face impossible success medically, yet being treated. Um, And I think even the conversation that it's easier to offer treatment than to tell someone about how they will die, we might be able to actually impact people, you know, getting their own hands on the dials and controls of their own end of life, mm. if they could plan for their own deaths better. You know, there's, we won't get into this now probably, but there are so many, there are several documents and one must have in place. Yeah. Um, might we treat the elderly differently when we can actually t- do more than a toe touch on the fact that someone's life is ending? Um, you know, the medicine of hope, you know, in our, in our death cafe, I'm sure we'll talk about that. There's just so much that we can touch on that will just allow people to settle down a little bit about their mortality and nothing else be around others who are grieving in a way that isn't averting eyes. You know, there's a lot of connection in loss and grief. um, And there's a lot of courage in looking at your mortality on a daily basis that really brings you to what's important and it's this moment that we all need to be present in. And, you know, throughout this Live Well, Die Well tour, what's amazing to me is you have community members like yourself who are becoming my, you know, everyday heroes. You don't see them on large stages or, you know, best-selling books, but the work that you are doing in your community is radically changing how people look at death, it will experience death, and how we're going to normalize it. And to me, that is the important grassroots work that that I'm trying to to do. And it's so nice to be doing it besides people, beside people mm-hmm. like you, you know, who are just yeah. doing what is right and what they're called to do. And I thank you for that. You're welcome. You're very welcome. And I, you know, just to, to get a little more on the concrete side, I would I would just so recommend that people become informed on all things death, and I you know I can certainly provide a re- one of my favorite resources. But I before even saying that, I'd also number two um, complete documents that outline mm-hmm. your preferences, your living will, your healthcare proxy, your DNI, your bolster. There are four very important to take that on and to discuss wishes with family. Yeah, you know, the just conversation. Yeah, the harder, you know, the harder things. And, and if you look around, go in your local newspaper, you, there's there's so many resources now being put toward this and commu- at a community level where these conversations are opening up. And to just be in the space. Um, and then I, I would just also want to add, and I again, this is another whole topic, Kimberly, but navigating final stages of life includes a natural grief, a mm. natural grief. And, you know, for anyone listening to this podcast and going to your, uh, on your, looking at your, you know, going to your sessions, 
it's normal to resist everything we're talking about. It's normal to feel off balance. And the more you kind of maybe sit in the space of these conversations to feel afraid, to feel sad, it's almost like a gate to go through because this is ultimately a reflection of a life alive, a life you you like or don't like, but you really want to keep it. Right. Right. So, so I would just, you know, just to, to all listeners and in 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 anyone toe touching on this conversation, keep at it because if you do, there is an appreciation. As you just said, this there is an appreciation for your life that will grow. This I know. Yeah. Mariah, I I can't tell you, I mean, meeting you now, calling you a friend and now working together, um, it's just one of those things that I'm so grateful um, to cross people's paths like yourself and and then for you to turn around and share it on on a podcast that is truly owned by the community. Um, I really do appreciate your time. And, And can you give us your website one more time? Yes, it's Mariah, M A R. I A H Reese R I E S S dot com. So another resource for those who are listening on this now going, getting ready to start season four of Death by Design podcast. We know people are interested, and all we have to do is keep learning, be students. Um, and I believe the more we learn, it might lessen our fear, but it's just a human reaction to the unknown. Um, So, Mariah, thank you for your time. And I tell you, until we meet again, uh, my listeners, uh, you know, Death by Design podcast is out there. Join Mariah. Contact her if you have any questions. But Mariah, thanks again for who you are in your community and uh, providing me uh, just guidance in my own journey um, as a professional. So thank you for your time. A complete privilege, Kimberly. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.